please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. And this is a troubling passage. There is just no way to get around it. I wish that this passage had not hit us on the week in which we were having all of the children with us. That's what my initial response was. This passage raises some significant and difficult issues for us to wrestle with. That first one is, what is any of this doing in the Bible? And you're going, as we read through it in just a moment, you're going to see why I am troubled by it. And we will all begin to feel that trouble together. This is a passage that makes us feel uncomfortable. You know, we sometimes want everything in the Bible to be worthy of posting on Facebook, posting on social media, inspirational verse of the day. I can guarantee you there is not a devotional that is pulling an inspirational verse from this chapter. Not one. This is a difficult passage. And part of the question we bring as we enter into a passage like this is, what is any of this doing in the Bible? The Bible, God's word to us. We're uncomfortable with the fact that God chooses to record these events in history. But it is clear that God is more honest about human evil than than we are ourselves. And God gives an honest picture of what his people have done. He does not whitewash as we are so prone to do today with our heroes, our political heroes, we, we will ignore their flaws and highlight the flaws of our political rivals or enemies. Nothing like that happens here. These are the people of God. These are the patriarchs of Israel. And everything in this chapter stinks to high heaven. But that is why I asked earlier, for Emerson to read that passage from 2 Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's not that all scripture takes in Genesis up to Genesis 33 and then continues again in 35 and whatever's happening here, this is something else. All scripture is all scripture and it is profitable for you It's profitable for our kids. And our kids need to be confronted with this too. Because the world is not fair. As we would tell my dad growing up, this isn't fair. Life's not fair. This is disappointing. Okay. Get used to it. People sin. Not just people, God's people. How could Christians act like that? How can can a pastor do that? What we find in our chapter is an honest assessment of the darkness of the human heart. And so this will raise difficult questions for us as parents. And I would just encourage us, all of us parents, to deal honestly with the questions that our kids have. I will be as 
careful as I can while being as clear from the text with what needs to be there. And I, I am fully aware that this may mean your, your lunch this afternoon, your car ride may be full of difficult questions as I am sure ours will be. But this is important for us. So the way we're going to work through this text this morning is I'm going to read through the entire text. We're going to talk about and just highlight a, a handful of ways this passage is a troubling passage. And then we're going to answer the question, why is this here? What does God have for us in it? All right, so that's, that's our pattern. We're going to read, we're going to meditate on the passage itself, highlight some things, and then draw from it what God has for us. But before we do that, let's pray. Father in heaven, grant us mercy today, humility of mind and heart, that we may submit to your word, that we may confess from our, with our lips that your word is good in every part. Grant us this by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So follow along as I read Genesis chapter 34 this morning. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, and you'll remember there in the pre- at the end of the previous chapter, Jacob with his family is settling near the city of Shechem. So they, Shechem is both a person and a place here. Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country or the city, saw her saw Dinah, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I will give you according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman for as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, we, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. 
If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. That is, he, he had more um, nobility. He had greater prestige, not that he was an honorable person. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. Now it came to pass on the third day, when they were in pain, the two of the sons of Jacob, of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep their oxen and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the house. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? It is no wonder that as I was preparing for this passage and studying it, I found that there were several, copy, several commentaries that just skipped over Genesis 34 altogether. One commentator, a Lutheran commentator, suggested after commentating on the pass after commenting on the passage at the end of all of his comments he would normally give uh, tips or suggestions on ways that each chapter could be preached at the end of this one he suggested that this be relegated only for the use of small men's groups and bible studies and that there were no good suggestions to preach this passage it wasn't very encouraging But this is the word of the Lord. And what we find here is an immensely troubling passage. It's troubling because of what is done to Dinah. She is sexually assaulted, raped. We see that there in verse 2. We find this series of verbs. He saw her, Shechem saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. 
Another translation, trying to get to it, puts it like this. He saw her, he grabbed her, he forced himself on her, and he sexually assaulted her. More than that, we we find in verse 26 that Shechem kidnapped her. We know this because when Jacob, I'm sorry, when Levi and Simeon go into the city and they, they're in the process of slaughtering the men, and we'll get to that in just a moment, we find in verse 26 that it's at that time that they bring her out. For days she was held by Shechem. And there is absolutely, there ought to be no doubt in our minds that she is a victim in this passage. There's some older commentators that suggested that she is at fault. And there is this line of thinking that was definitely prevalent in the world at certain times that those young women who are assaulted in this way, they share some part of the guilt of it. It is partly their fault. We find no justification for that here. Not an ounce of it. We, we read those words that she went out into the country to see the daughters of the country. But that is a, a suggestion that she was curious. And if you follow the timeline, she is probably, as some commentators believe, she is probably about 12 years old or less. Which only adds to the horror of what is done to her. And what Shechem and his dad do is they treat this as totally normal. And in fact, the way they go about it, it seems that it was customary for the city of Shechem, possibly even, possibly even a, a, something that was indicative of broad culture, broader culture there in Canaan. He wanted this young girl, he saw her, he takes her violently, and then having had her, then he goes to, to, to find some way that he can make her his wife. Everything in the text seems to point to the fact that this was normal for this city. Normal process, dating process for this city. It's almost as if they are, I almost dare not use the illustration because it almost cheapens what, it, what has happened here, but it's almost as if they are taking a bite out of the cookie to make sure that no one else will eat it. it they act as if what they have done is normal, acceptable, good behavior. At no point do they apologize They don't go to Jacob and Hamor doesn't in any way excuse or or, or ask for, make an apology for his son's behavior. They don't seem to recognize that anything that they have done is wrong. And, And this is a good reminder for us that we dare not take our, our understanding of what is right and wrong from what the world believes is right and wrong. The the entire city and, and possibly broader cult, culture of Canaan thought this was acceptable and normal behavior. And our world today will give us all sorts of suggestions and tell us this is good, this is normal, this is to be expected. 
as if we have the right and every society has the right to choose for itself what is right and what is wrong. But if that's the case, then then you and I have no right to judge Shechem. If every society, if it's legitimate for every society to determine for itself what is right and wrong, then there is no way any society can determine that another society is doing something evil. But if you and I do find this a heinous crime, and I hope we do, then we are answering that question or we, were, we are clearly saying that there is a morality that is fixed. It is beyond us. It is not subject to popular vote. It is not swayed with popular culture. And if there is a morality that is fixed, if right and wrong are right and wrong for all time and all peoples everywhere, then it tells us that that morality that is fixed was fixed there by a creator. And our world will try to tell us with commercials and TV shows and movies and advertisements that two men or two women together is totally acceptable. Apple right now is is publishing an emoji that is a, a, a pregnant transgendered person. And it wants us to believe that that's okay. This is good. But in the same way that you and I rightfully look back at what Shechem has done and we are morally repulsed by it, we can be absolutely 100% sure that there is coming a day when we, then no, those in the future will be morally repulsed at what we think is totally fine and normal and acceptable now. We must, brothers and sisters, courageously submit our ideas of what is right and wrong, not to the world, but to the Word. Let this be your guide not your HR director, but the one who has created you. Not a group in Hollywood or in the halls of Washington, but he who sits on the throne of heaven. This is troubling. It's troubling not just because of what has happened to Dinah, not just because of how terribly evil the city of Shechem appears to be. It's troubling because of what we see in in Jacob. He is complacent here. He is apathetic. He's apathetic about his obedience. If we were to go back to the end of chapter 33 and find that he is is settled here, 18 to 20, tell us that he he settles here near the city of Shechem. But earlier in Genesis... He is commanded by the Lord to return to Bethel. I am the God of Bethel. Go there, make an altar, worship me. And Jacob had promised as he was leaving that he would return and 
worship the Lord there. But here he is in Canaan, just 20 miles shy. Almost there. And he settles down. Almost obedient. But he falls short. He's like a long distance runner. That yards before he crosses the finish line, starts jogging and gets passed. He's like those football players that start, catch the ball, run, and they're off to the races. And right before they cross the the, the goal line zone, they start celebrating and they, they drop the ball early. That's what Jacob is like here. And this is what you and I face every day, that temptation to fall short in our obedience. Whether we are going to school or work, growing complacent and apathetic, getting satisfied with an obedience, an obedience that is almost but not quite complete. We may find the desire like Jacob, and it appears that Jacob's desire is to fit in. He is settling down like Lot near Sodom and Gomorrah. A little disobedience to God, a little complacency in what we ought to do, a little compromise in life. What difference does it make? And this chapter answers that in a terrifying way. More than that, Jacob is apathetic about his daughter and his sons. He finds out that Dinah has been assaulted in this way. He hears about it. And in Jacob's whole life, he's been the one to take the initiative. He's the guy who takes the initiative, sometimes bad, to deceive his brother, to deceive his father, to get what he wants. He's the guy who, who comes upon the, the well that's covered with the stone. He pushes it out of the way before anyone asks. He's the guy that's always working out the deal. But now he comes to his daughter and he remains silent. He waits till his sons come in. And then before they come in, Shechem and his dad show up. And the brothers hear about it, but not from Jacob. And they are, rightfully so, outraged. And Hamor and Shechem appeal to Jacob. And Just dads, for a moment, put yourselves in Jacob's shoes. You find out that your daughter has been treated this way. And then the man responsible for it comes to you and he's got a business deal. And he just sits there and he says nothing. And he allows his sons to deal deceitfully. He allows his sons to do what ought not to be done. And then when his sons do what they do, his response to them is outrage, not over what they have done. His response is outrage that now people aren't, they're they're going to hate him. They might gather themselves together and come after him. 
That's what, that's the only thing he talks about and says is in this entire chapter. This chapter is terrifying or troubling because of the way that we see these, these men act. These men who are the patriarchs of Israel. These are supposed to be God's people. And yet they commit a heinous crime themselves. We would understand if they went in seeking vengeance on Shechem and Hamor. But we are told these two men went in when everyone was most vulnerable and they killed every man. Every man. And then we are told that they, and it's all Jacob's sons there, all of Jacob's sons, not just Simeon and Levi, but all Jacob's sons, they went in and they captured and kidnapped all the women, all the children, all the servants, all their belongings, and they took them and enriched themselves by it. What we have here is nothing short of a war crime. And at the end of this chapter, you have Jacob and Simeon who are justifying what they've done by pointing the finger at, your, at their dad. How could you just let him treat our daughter, our sister this way? And you have Jacob who's shrugging his shoulders. I can't believe you've done this. Now no one's going to like me. Nobody admits fault. It, it's like they've gone out into the field to take a hike. And they find themselves walking through a cow pasture and they've fallen in every cow paddy along the way. They stink. These are supposed to be God's people, God's chosen people, the one through whom God is going to bless the world. These are supposed to be the people who are a light to the world. So what do we gather from this chapter Why does Moses include this? What does God have for us in Genesis 34? I think first and foremost, we can see that we need to be wary that we do not let our obedience to God be partial. Jacob almost obeyed God by almost going all the way to Bethel. But instead of going all the way, he, he fell short. He wanted to be accepted. He wanted to, to live amongst the people. Brothers and sisters, let this passage be a warning to us of the, of the consequences of a partial obedience. To mostly obey God is to disobey God. And it is to put ourselves in harm's way. Jacob shouldn't even have been here. Second, husbands, fathers, men. I think we read a passage like this and we are called and reminded of our responsibility to lead and to love and to serve in ways that are 
godly. To serve our family. If Jacob was serving his daughter Dinah, he would have responded immediately. But he was apathetic. Husbands, we are called to love ourselves, love our wives. We are called to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. And the way Christ loves the church is he loves her in such a way, loves us all in such a way, so that he is actively working in us to present us as holy. We are to love our families like that. We dare not be apathetic in this. Thirdly, this past week, our text for memorization was James 1, 19 to 20, where James reminds us, know this, my beloved brethren, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Remember, your anger does not produce righteousness. It does not produce something that is pleasing to God. I think all of us can understand the outrage of Simeon and Levi. This is their sister the half-sister of a number of the others, but their sister, and they take responsibility for her. I, I remember I was 12, 13 years old. My older sister, who's four years older than me, came in the door one day and told us, it was some Saturday, my dad was home, it was the afternoon, and she told my dad this guy is outside. We, we, there was a family up the street always giving our, uh, us problems. He's outside. He pushed me. And he has been saying, he followed me home. He has been threatening me and saying rude things to me. My dad was in his late 40s. He had a, a terrible back sometimes where he could barely move. I have never seen my dad run so fast as he did that day. This kid is 16, 17, 8 years old, 18 years old, and he chased him down. Of course, my brother and I, we ran outside to watch the whole thing. He chased him down outside. And I watched him threaten that guy within an inch of his life. I think all of us can understand how Jacob, uh, sorry, Limia, S- Levi and Simeon felt. And yet, They are gripped by their anger and their rage. And they commit mass murder. For which there is no justification. This is where their anger took them. Where does your anger take you? It is often a tool that we use to control others with fear, to manipulate the situation, to get what we want. You know, we, we are so quick to excuse our own wrongdoing, but so quick to get angry at the wrongdoing of others. 
But our anger does not produce the righteousness of God. It does not please God. And this isn't just explosive anger. This can be that low-grade irritation that just boils. Brother and sister in Christ, repent of that. Repent of it. Fourth, do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Moses is writing this book and he is giving it to the people of Israel before they cross into the promised land. Part of what he is doing here is he is trying to show the people of Israel in his time the dangers of joining themselves with and trying to be like the people of Canaan. Why, Moses, are we not allowed to mix with them? Why can we not take their daughters and exchange them? Why? Why? And Moses lays out for them exactly why, giving them a picture. You're going into a beautiful land that God has promised you. Do not be, do not fall in love with the nations of that land. Do not fall in love with the world. We are reminded we have this same calling. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Brother and sister in Christ, watch your heart. Watch your heart. What are you tied to? What do you look forward to the most? What do you want? What are you saving for? What is your hope? Watch where you plant your affections. Two more. Fifth, this passage is a humbling reminder of God's mercy to each of us. And so often we are tempted to whitewash the, the guilt, the things we find despicable in those people that we respect. We can easily overlook things that we do not like in the people that we love from history. Moses, however, he highlights that which is so unfathomably, unfathomably wicked about the patriarchs, the very fathers of Israel itself. And he makes no excuse for them. Imagine reading this chapter for the first time and knowing that you are a Levite or a Simeon. 
Knowing that some of the wealth that you have as an Israelite is, can be traced to this event here. What a humbling chapter this is. It's why we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses will say, The Lord God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And if they ask, why? Is it because there is something wonderful about us? Is there there something because we were morally superior to the nations around us? Is there because something in us that you knew was praiseworthy and good? No. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And Paul gives us, the Apostle Paul gives us the very same idea, the very same truth when he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has loved us because he has loved us. And there is not an ounce of that love that can be traced to any quality within us. And lastly, when we reflect on the fact that these are indeed God's chosen people, These are indeed the very ones through whom the promises of God are entering into the world. These are the very ones through whom Christ will be born. That is through the people of God, through the Israelites, through Jacob. What becomes clear is that God's redemptive purposes for us are not put in jeopardy by our worst moral failures. It would appear that at the end of this chapter, everything is jeopardized, everything is lost. Jacob is not where he's supposed to be. Dinah's defiled. The sons of Jacob are guilty of murder and war crimes. And no one is taking responsibility. But in the very next chapter, when all seems homeless, God, hopeless, God calls Jacob to repentance and it becomes clear that the purpose and promises of God cannot be canceled by the villainous and failures of God's people. What this tells us is that there is no stain of sin that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse from us. 
There is no wound of guilt that the wounds of Christ do not heal. There is no condemnation that we deserve that the sufferings of Christ have not already borne. Friends, I was sitting in a service like this. I was six years of age. And I remember the pastor preaching and he began from the word of God, talking about the judgment of God in eternity. And as he spoke on hell, my heart broke within me. You know, at six years old, I was doing normally everything else. I was sitting still, but like counting lights, doing everything except listening to the preaching. But that morning, God's spirit just shook me, gripped me. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I stood condemned before God. The service ends and just like here, all the little kids are running rampage all throughout the church. That's what I did. But not that service. Not that Sunday. My heart was gripped. I could barely move. I waited anxiously for my dad and mom to just stop talking so we could go home. On the way home, I blurted out, Dad, can you show me how I can be saved? My dad walked me through the gospel that I had heard so often that Christ had died for my sin. And there sitting on on the couch in our living room, I trusted in Christ. But that was 32 years ago. I have sinned far more and far more egregiously as a Christian than I ever did before I was a Christian. Does this mean that my sin post-faith is good for nothing? Does this mean that I am forever sullied, that you and I forever sullied by what, how we have fallen short? The sin of pride and self-righteousness, of passionate pursuit of many terrible things. Is any of this jeopardize my standing with God? Are the promises of God for any of us in any way compromised? Is all lost? Will God disown us? It can never be. It can never be. In just a moment, we're going to sing that song, His Mercy is More, as we prepare to take the Lord's table. Before Dan comes and leads us in that song, I want to read through the lyrics of that song so that we might see the connection between that and now. You can follow along in your worship guide. I see many of you already reaching for them. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, 
He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he has lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Friend, if you have not tasted of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus, if you have not turned and trusted in Him, if you are mostly hoping in God, but still got an anchor in something that you are doing, or in the fact that your parents are good young people, trust not in anything. Trust only in the mercy that can be found in Christ Jesus. Your sins are more numerous than you know. It is like standing beneath a black or above a black chasm of which you and I can only get a few yards into a seeing into. The darkness is there. But the mercy, the mercy is richer. The mercy is better. His mercy is more. Whether we have trusted in Christ for many years or whether we have not yet trusted today, let us look to Christ through whom the all-sufficient mercy of God flows. Let's pray. Oh God, help us this morning to be gripped by your mercy, which is indeed more. No matter how great our sin, no matter how great our shame, no matter how deep the scars go, your mercy is more. It is sufficient. It is enough. Because the worth of your son is infinite. Oh, Father, let us put our hope and renew our faith in Christ today. It is by him alone that we can boldly come and ask these things. Amen.